0: Excel Pro. Many companies have had everyone sign the same level of restrictions from the C-level executives to the hourly worker on the line. It is really important in this environment for companies to be circumspect about who do we need to have protections from and how long should those protections last and what's the scope of those protections?
1: Welcome to Excel Pro Employment Law where we provide expert interviews and coaching to accelerate your professional development. I'm Matt Cresper. Today we're going to talk about non-compete agreements. Our guest is Jay Swig, a partner at Ballard Spar who has been an employment attorney for 25 years. We're going to talk about the three pillars of crafting reasonable non-compete agreements. Who gets them and why, the geography behind them, and how long, or short, they should last. Excel Pro's expert interviews and coaching accelerate your professional development. Our mission is to improve your day-to-day job performance and make your career goals achievable. For a transcript of this episode and to learn more about the Excel Pro Employment Law Community, visit JoinExcelPro.com. That's J-O-I-N-A-C-C-E-L. P-R-O.com. And now for my conversation with Jay Swy. Jay, welcome to the show. Good to be here. Nice to see you, Matt. Now, we're going to talk in some depth today about restrictive covenants and non-compete agreements. But before we get too deep, I want to first define terms. Restrictive covenants seems to be the broad term that encompasses a couple of different kinds of agreements. Can you explain the differences between non-competes,
0: non-solicitations, and confidentiality agreements? Great question, and that's something for practitioners, companies, and executives to be aware of. At the base level, you have confidentiality or non-disclosure agreements, that's to protect non-public proprietary information or trade secrets of a company. These are very standard, either in employee handbooks or in potential business transactions or broader employment agreements. At the next level, you would have what I would call a non-solicitation agreement. That would be a pledge by someone Who is in a trusted role not to capitalize on relationships that they obtained through the business and leave them alone for a period of time? Don't have a conflict of interest. Don't try to take away business. A similar type of non solicit is what you might call a non poach agreement or non hiring agreement. And similar to a customer or business non-solicit, a non-poach agreement is to say, if you leave the company or you start a venture or you want some help on your side gig, don't use our employees to do that because our employees are supposed to be focused on working for our business. Those three are Bedrock types of things that most companies really should be aware of and be diligent about. The highest level of restriction is what you called and what everyone's familiar with in terms of a non compete. And a non compete is for a period of time, stay out of that business. And I'm sure we'll talk about more detail, but Stay out. Do not do any business in that area within certain restrictions.
1: One more topic I want to discuss before we get into the nitty gritty, and that is why now? To quote from a piece that you wrote, an increasing number of states are severely limiting or absolutely prohibiting the use of restrictive covenants. That's the end of the quote. You've been working in this field for decades. Is this a cyclical thing or is there something else happening?
0: Certainly, there are politics involved, and we see in the current administration, both during the election and since the current administration federally has been in place, that it is a much more worker-focused environment. Union protections, expansion of worker rights, expansion of leave, that's a government type of initiative that we're seeing. Beyond that, post-pandemic, you're really seeing much, much more fluidity in the labor market where people do have their side gigs, where companies are concerned about what is the employee doing if they're working a hybrid schedule or a remote schedule And the tension regarding these restrictive covenants agreements is just a symptom of that overall resetting of what's going on in the workforce. Okay, let's talk details here. I listened to an interview you gave on the subject about what goes into an agreement,
1: and the key word was the term reasonable. To be enforceable, a non-compete has to be reasonable. And it seems to me there are three factors. The first is who gets them and for what reasons. The second is geography. And the third is how long they last. And I want to tackle those one at a time. So the first is, this is the question everybody wants to know the answer to, who should get them and why should they get them?
0: Again, that's just a spot on question. And reflecting back on your last question, part of the backlash, if you will, against these agreements is that many companies have had everyone sign the same level of restrictions from the C-level executives to the hourly worker on the line. It is really important in this environment for companies to be circumspect about who do we need to have protections from and how long should those protections last and what's the scope of those protections. So again, if you have a CEO and you say, we don't want that CEO to go work for a direct competitor for a period of time if they leave our company, Most people can understand that, but if you have the receptionist or the executive assistant to the head of sales being kept out of an industry for a period of time, that's much more difficult to justify. So to your question, who gets these agreements? That's the first thing that the company should think through. Who gets them? And then along with that, what is the business being restricted? If you have, for example, the CEO of a hospital chain and you say, CEO of hospital chain, you cannot work in the healthcare industry, many courts are going to find that to be too broad because this is a hospital chain. Why couldn't this person go work in managed care or senior living or hospice or something where there are services provided and maybe a hospital does some of them but it really isn't the hospital's core business so who gets them and what is the business being restricted the activity being restricted those are initial inquiries
1: how does training fit into this as well? That's an issue I see a lot where the company will want to restrict somebody because they feel like they spent a lot of money training them and they don't want them to leave and take that training with them elsewhere.
0: That really is something that is disfavored in the law. I think it's a really good point and it might justify some sort of agreement that if the company came out of pocket for the training, There might be some sort of agreement to reimburse, but the type of career development in training of employees is generally something that courts are not very sympathetic to restricting someone from leaving because of that. Is there anything else on who gets them that our listeners need to know before I move ahead to geography? Well, I think the other piece of that is who has got them because a threshold step that we're doing with our clients is saying, if you have restrictive covenants that are two, three, four, sometimes even older than that in years, those are really things that you need to dust off and review.
1: I imagine with statutes changing that it makes some of these agreements either non-enforceable or need to be tweaked. How often should you be reviewing these documents and what's some best practices there?
0: Well, the best practice is to do it now and do it in response to all the things we've been talking about, right? The federal government coming down very hard on the side of free market, free worker mobility, the FTC, and now the NLRB coming out and saying, we don't like non-competes and we're going to outlaw them. And then various local states, cities, municipalities that are saying, we're going to ban these things or restrict them. And one other thing I will mention is before the end of the year is also a really good time to do this because many employers will pay a year-end bonus or a holiday bonus or year-end is often the time when raises are being considered. And in many states, not all, but many states, there needs to be legal consideration where the employee gets something for signing a new agreement. And from a human resources perspective, you can also tie it together. Hey, we're about to pay bonuses. While we're doing that, we're updating our agreements consistently with the law, Sign here, your bonus check will be on its way. This does take some time because you're going to want a lot of people in your organization to weigh in on this. Let's move to geography. This is, I'm guessing,
1: changing as the world changes. It used to be that a non-compete would prevent you from working for a competitor within a certain mileage distance. Has modernity made that
0: all but irrelevant? It's not irrelevant, but it is a factor, and courts will look at that. It's somewhat dependent on the business. For example, if you have a car wash or a medical practice or you sell memberships to a gym, the customer base is within a certain proximity of those types of facilities, and so geography could become important. If it's a national or worldwide business or something where customers are from many different places, then geography is not as critical. And this is where, as you mentioned before, Matt, a non-compete could interface with a non-solicitation of customers.
1: Another compounding factor here is the company might be headquartered in one state and you're hiring a person who lives in another state whose laws are completely different. Some states have outright bans on non-competes. Colorado has made it a criminal offense to enforce an illegal non-compete. What advice do you have for HR directors and employment attorneys working for companies with employees scattered across the country?
0: Know the local laws and make sure that your application of non-competes are consistent with the laws of where you are restricting people. Some companies do choose, and they're entitled to do this, to have a choice of law provision in these agreements and make them all Delaware law or all the law of a state that is favorable to employers. And we certainly understand and work with those. But as you pointed out, Matt, if you attempt to enforce one of those agreements in a state like Colorado or California, which also traditionally is extremely hostile to non-compete agreements, you're going to have difficulty enforcing that. So it is very important to know the local laws and what you can and cannot do. We've talked about who gets the agreements. We've talked
1: about the geography component. The third and final piece of that puzzle is length of time. How short is too short? How long is too long? And how do you make those decisions?
0: Well, I'm going to default again, Matt, to it's a case-by-case basis. But the legal standard for practitioners and companies looking at these agreements is what is the least amount of time that we can restrict someone and have a reasonable opportunity to, A, replace them, recruit and hire someone, get them trained up, and B, have our customers and their coworkers get familiar and comfortable with them Many states do have statutes that say anything above this amount of time is presumptively bad or not enforceable. But I will tell you on most non-compete agreements, unless it involves the sale of a business or the most senior of C-level executives, in my experience going to court and enforcing these, which I do a lot, Anything over one year is going to draw a lot of scrutiny. And what I do when I'm drafting these agreements is I push my clients a bit. Sometimes they don't like that. But I'll raise the question and say, can you live with nine months? Can you live with six months? Because the less amount of time that you say to someone, you can't work in the industry, the better business justification you can have for that transition time.
1: Before I move on to separate questions, I want to ask, Did we cover it all? Those were the questions I knew to ask. An HR executive who's listening to this, what else do they need to know?
0: What they need to know is to put protocols in place when someone joins a company to make sure that the restrictive covenants, all of confidentiality agreements, everything we've been talking about gets signed and put somewhere that it could be retrieved. So it's kind of a cradle to grave approach. You got to make sure these things are signed and acknowledged. And then at the end of the employment relationship, it's really important you can have your lawyer do this. But the HR department can also perform the function very well. When someone is leaving the company as part of their exiting offboarding process, they should get a letter from the company or the company's lawyer. It could be very friendly, but just saying, We want to remind you that you have these post employment restrictions. Here's another copy of what you signed, and the company takes it seriously, and we're going to protect our rights. We wish you well. Go on and go forth. But we have many instances where employees just conveniently forget about these things. And the one other thing for the HR department that I would say, and we haven't talked about this, Matt, but when you are hiring someone, you want to be very intentional about asking them in writing about, are they subject to any post-employment restrictions from their former employer. We've unfortunately had to represent a number of businesses who hired someone who, believe it or not, forgot or just didn't disclose to the new company that there was a restrictive covenant. And the new employer can be liable for interference with contract, all kinds of things. If you bring on someone and they import trade secrets from their former employer where they violate a restrictive covenant. So that's another thing for HR people to look at is when you're hiring someone, what should you be worried about in this topic?
1: All right, now I want to pivot and ask you some professional development type questions. You've been an employment attorney for 25 years.
0: Did you choose employment law? Did it choose you? I had outstanding mentoring at the start of my career. And for lawyers at whatever stage of their career, it's really important to align with mentors, trusted colleagues you can collaborate with, and people that you can learn from. I'm always learning. This isn't a junior, senior lawyer thing. I get more out of being a mentor than I give as a mentor. I learn a lot, but... I had an excellent mentor who was an experienced L&E lawyer, and they had a huge passion for this area of law and the balance between doing what's fair for employees and retaining employees and paying appropriately in a respectful environment and wage, and also protecting the rights of the business to stay in business. I've really focused my career on representing employers. And sometimes employers have a manager or someone who's not been trained or just doesn't feel the way you and I do about fairness. And in those instances, I've been really pleased to have an opportunity to say to the business, this isn't right and this is creating liability for you. So I'm not your moralist, I'm your attorney. But if you let this manager run amok or not follow the law, there are going to be monetary consequences. And some of the areas like employee safety, OSHA law, things like that that I do, people can die. I have great respect for companies who recognize that their human capital, their people, it's their number one business asset. It's really a wonderful opportunity to be of service.
1: One more question after hearing that passionate answer. I've asked that question of a lot of people. I get somewhat similar answers. The thing that almost makes me jealous of employment attorneys is all of their cases involve helping a person solve a problem. Sometimes you help them solve it. Sometimes you don't. But the point is you get to try to help them. Did you know as you were going into it that it was going to be such a life-enriching profession? And if you didn't, can you recall a moment where you thought, oh, I made the right choice for my career. This incident proves it.
0: My aha moment, Matt, was very early in my career. I graduated law school at a pretty young age and other than being a paperboy and working at Baskin-Robbins and having the usual kind of summer jobs, I was not in the workforce. So I went straight through school, had a wonderful caddy scholarship to attend Northwestern University, then went on to the University of Texas for law school started the workforce. And my aha moment was probably in my first or second year of practicing when I gave some advice to a company, someone who had a lot more experience in human resources than I had in legal practice. And they took the advice seriously and even followed the advice. And that was fairly addictive to say that I could deploy my education and my preparedness. And if I was prepared and had reasons behind the advice I was providing, people, gosh darn it, would follow it. And again, part of that's being of service, part of it's probably ego, but it said to me, there's a lot you can do because clients want to put trust in their attorneys and it's incumbent on me as the attorney to not only earn that trust, but continue to earn it every single time I engage with that client.
1: Well, on that note, I want to thank you for your time. It was both educational and frankly encouraging to listen to someone with such passion talk about their work. So I want to say thank you for that.
0: Matt, this was a great conversation and I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you.
1: For a transcript of this conversation and to learn more about the Excel Pro Employment Law Community, visit joinexcelpro.com. That's J-O-I-N-A-C-C-E-L-P-R-O.com. Thanks again to today's guest. If your colleagues in any sector of the employment law field might be interested, please let them know about Excel Pro. As our community grows, it grows more useful for its members. Remember to send your comments and career questions to questions at joinexcelpro.com. You can also call us at 614-642-2235. That's 614 64 excel Excel Pro Employment Law is powered by Kaplan. Producers are J. Ray Sparks and Jeff Eisenman. The team is Shweta Kalkarney, Caitlin Cole, Jira Goff, Ainesh Bose, Arnesh Bose, Neil Ungerleiter, and me, Matt Crossman. Remember, we excel together. See you next time.